From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. When it comes to the pandemic, where do we stand on vaccines, long COVID, and NOVID, that is, people who believe they've never had the virus? Have we moved from the pandemic to endemic? Today, hear from three physicians in Denver and Grand Junction who've been on the front lines. We'll also check in on their own health, particularly mental health. Later, the pandemic gave two filmmakers a new home in Colorado and new inspiration. Truthfully, that's where the script that became the movie really took shape. And we, we wrote remember. it at the dining room table in our new house in Boulder. Yeah. And they wrote a sequel to their own blockbuster. Plus, she's one of the oldest people to graduate from CU Boulder. Why'd she decide to get her degree at 76? Colorado Public Radio is powered by you. The stories, music, and statewide coverage wouldn't be possible without member support. In short, you make what you tune in for possible. If CPR adds value to your life, support it at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The word pandemic was a distant concept just three years ago. Now it's a part of our vocabularies, our lives. But COVID may be entering a new chapter, an endemic one. The virus, of course, is still disrupting lives, even claiming them. So let's get a checkup on COVID in Colorado from three physicians who've been on the front lines. Dr. Ken Lin Q is a critical care pulmonologist at National Jewish Health in Denver. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. Dr. Diane Janowitz specializes in infectious disease at St. Mary's Medical Center in Grand Junction. And welcome to you. Thank you. And Dr. Anuj Mehta is an ICU pulmonologist at Denver Health. He has also advised the state on vaccine allocation. And Dr. Mehta, welcome back. Thanks so much. Dr. Janowitz, what does it mean for COVID-19 to become endemic? And are we there? Well, we're not there yet, um, but we're approaching that. So endemic means that we have the disease at a consistent rate um, in our society. Um, There's not drastic increases. We don't see outbreaks, um, but just a consistent level of people who are infected and spreading the disease in a very predictable manner. And why we're not there yet, but hopefully soon. Yeah. Why aren't we there yet? I haven't heard the word outbreak in a while, actually. We haven't, but we're still seeing large numbers of people who are infected on a daily basis. And we're not sure how this disease um, is going to play out over the next several months, uh, particularly approaching the fall, where we expect numbers to increase, um, as we've seen in the past three years. So if things feel stable now, the question is, will they remain so? And we don't quite know that yet. We just looked at the numbers, 140 people with COVID are hospitalized in Colorado right now. That's a sobering number, 140 people across our state. Dr. Lin Q, is is it too early to let our guards down? I think that it's not too, it's too early to completely let our guard down. But what we want to really do is continue to learn how to live with this virus, right? So you never want to let your guard down against anything, right? Whether it's influenza, coronavirus, but at the same time, 
it's here to stay. We just don't know how it's going to stay, as we just heard, and the numbers it's going to stay at. So we just want to make sure that for each individual person, we're taking the right precautions for us. Because if you're 90 and have immunosuppressive disease, your precautions are going to be different if you're than if you're 25 and completely healthy. Yeah, I think it's interesting, right? Like the pandemic may be more over for some people in our population than others. And I think it's really important not to project that you think something's over just because your corner of the world looks a certain way. Uh, Dr. Mehta, I mentioned that you advised the state on the COVID vaccines. The CDC has simplified recommendations for most people. What, what is the latest guidance on vaccines? So I, you're correct. They've tried to simplify it for most adults. And so they have phased out the original or what's also called the monovalent vaccines, the first generation of COVID vaccines. And now for most adults, we're left with just the new bivalent vaccines. And if you're 65 and over, or if you're immunocompromised, and you can talk to your healthcare provider about that, you're eligible to get a second booster. For everybody else, you know, a single booster after the original series uh, should be sufficient. And, and remember, the goals of vaccination may not be the same as they originally were. We, the original vaccines against the original virus were very effective at preventing infection. Uh -huh. We know now that if you're vaccinated, you may get infected, but they're still very good at preventing you from landing in the hospital and getting sick and ending up in the ICU. And there's emerging data that being vaccinated will also potentially reduce the risks of long COVID. So again, it's a single booster if you're under 65 um, and over um, if you're over 65, a second booster. Dr. Janowitz, do you expect we'll move to annual vaccinations against COVID-19? Uh, that's hard to predict, but it's, it's likely. Uh, I think this may mimic what we see with influenza, uh, particularly once we get to an, an endemic uh, phase of this disease. Um, whether it's going to be annual, biannual, uh, that's going to play out over the next several months till the end of the year. And then, then we'll know a lot better how often we'll need our vaccines. And do we see the virus mutating in the way that we did early in the pandemic, Dr. Genoise? Uh, we are still seeing mutations. Uh, how those are clinically relevant are perhaps becoming less clear. So um, we're seeing different variations um, as we proceed through uh, this year, but whether or not those are going to be as perhaps infectious or as um, inducing as severe disease as we initially saw, it doesn't appear that that's going to be the case, but uh, there is some unpredictability left, so time will tell. Time will tell, which means we'll probably have you back on the program. <laughs> Dr. Lin Q, are you still seeing people in the hospital with COVID? And, and if so, what are you seeing? We're not seeing them frequently. You know, and I think when you think about 140 patients spread out across all the hospitals in Colorado, that's not a lot per hospital, much less per doctor in the hospital. What we are seeing is that we'll occasionally have a patient who's got an immune immunosuppressive state, usually drug-induced immunosuppression because we're treating something else. Uh -huh. maybe, and maybe cancer or something like cancer that. Cancer or an autoimmune disease. It seems to be a lot of autoimmune disease treated with um, rituximab, which is one of the wonder drugs that we use to control these diseases yeah. these days. 
And they tend to come in and just not be able to clear the virus and have these this up and down course of infection, feeling a little better, back into the hospital, back home, back into the hospital. And it's just we don't have the tools to just knock out the virus as easily as we'd like. And so these patients, unfortunately, have this kind of tough go of it. Dr. Mehta, you want to reflect on who's getting COVID now? Yeah, I think that uh, Dr. Lin Q kind of highlighted the fact that the people we're seeing in the hospital all are the vulnerable populations. They're the ones that either have chosen or have been unable to get any vaccine or people with underlying immunocompromised states. Um, you know, most hospitals are at relatively low levels. That's what we're seeing. We're not seeing them in the ICU very often. Um, the flip side of that is that hospitals are very full because we're struggling with kind of two to three years of people either avoiding primary care or um, not getting, you know, their routine medical issues taken care of. But also we're seeing a lot of the other consequences of mental health issues um, and substance abuse problems that kind of um, really blossomed during the, in a bad way, blossomed during the pandemic. Oh, that's really important perspective. The tale of the pandemic continues in many ways, both in mental and physical health. Dr. Jenowitz, do you see patients with COVID these days in the hospital? We do. Uh, Our numbers are down, uh, certainly just as they are on the eastern slope. Um, Many more patients are coming in with other primary illnesses and then being diagnosed with COVID. So it may not be their primary reason for admission. Uh, Yeah. So it's it's still here and affecting people's lives and, and those in the hospital. Is it a question still of who's vaccinated and who's not in terms of who shows up? Uh, I think I would say that, at least for our patients, we are seeing some who are unvaccinated, but uh, who are still coming in with COVID, but those who are vaccinated and maybe not up to date on vaccines. And then those who are immunocompromised um, or elderly are certainly disproportionately affected here as well. Dr. Mehta, are any new or different vaccines on the way? Um, I don't think, you know, there's there's always testing being done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Novavax was one that was re- um, more recently authorized by the FDA, but it didn't gain a lot of traction. Um, and I think the interest in creating new um, formulations of vaccines has decreased over time. I think what people are looking forward to is thinking about, is there a way to make the current vaccines more efficacious? Or um, are we going to have to reformulate them for a different type of variant in the future? Which, again, these are all things people are trying to predict, and uh, we don't know which direction things are going to head in. But I think the vaccines that we have are good. Um, the safety profiles are fantastic. And, uh, you know, we're going to have to think about how we can um, think about where we sh- which populations we should be targeting to get the biggest bang for our buck. Interesting. So the existing vaccines are like foundations that you would build uh, new buildings on. Um, anyone with long COVID likely feels the emergency is not over. And I'd like to ask each of you what you're observing three years on when it comes to long haulers. Are there any commonalities, Dr. Lin Q? Yeah. So as a ICU doctor, I don't see it a lot of the patients uh-huh. with long COVID. And what one of the interesting things is I don't see a lot of patients who are coming into the ICU with other issues with the long COVID. It, really seems to be this debilitating disease for of outpatient medicine. It is not acute, that is. You're not seeing people with long COVID show up at the ICU because they need, you know, really critical Correct. care. Uh-huh. Dr. Janowitz? Uh, so at least with my practice, I, I, I don't see too many patients with long COVID specifically. This is absolutely a burden 
on the outpatient side of things uh -huh. and, and particularly for primary care physicians. Uh, we certainly see and have many patients who have been affected by long COVID um, and how um, how much longer that will, will affect our population, I don't know. Well, that's a fascinating migration in a way, right? Early in the pandemic, it was emergency departments and ICUs that were teaming. And now, as you say, this is moving to kind of a a general practice PCP environment. Dr. Mehta, anything to share about long COVID? I think it's far more prevalent than we think. So as a pulmonologist, uh, you know, I work both in the inpatient and outpatient setting. We have a lot of patients with chronic cough lingering after COVID, shortness of breath, fatigue. Um, and uh, all those patients also tend to complain about this, you know, brain fog issue where they're not able to concentrate or focus as much. Um, and, you know, just to highlight it, I've had people, colleagues, and also other people that I've met reach out to me to see what can they do for long COVID. And when I try and help them navigate some of the long COVID clinics that are doing amazing research, but also providing great care, at, say the university or national Jewish wait times are sometimes two to three months. And so this is a big issue that's going to stay around and I think we've only begun to understand the toll it's taking on people's ability to work, the financial repercussions, um, and the psychological repercussions. Um, and the difficulty now is there's still no real common definition, and the research is just beginning on what to do, how to treat it, um, because the symptoms are so varied the research is actually quite difficult. Yeah, it's like every organ system can be targeted by long COVID. So if you have a long COVID clinic, you've got to have people who know the heart and the brain and the lungs. I'd like to talk about NOVID, okay? So this idea that someone has not gotten COVID, or if they have, maybe they're unaware of it. Uh, let's see, Dr. Lynn Q, critical care pulmonologist and National Jewish. Do you think there are some people who can't catch the virus? I don't know if it's that they can't catch the virus as much as their immune systems are just so good at fighting it off that they never know they have it. I, I feel jealous of them. Yeah. I live with one of them. Do you really? <laughs> my wife has not had it, but everybody else in my house has. And did she get kind of braggadocious about it? No. She's just happy. <laughs> I can imagine, and I'm happy for her. Dr. Diane Janowitz specializes in infectious disease at St. Mary's Medical Center in Grand Junction. Dr. Janowitz, anything you're observing in terms of these, like, invincibles? Well, there are certainly people who have not yet gotten COVID, um, and I hesitate to say this, but I'm going to. Uh, I'm one of those. Uh, so whether that's because I do have a super boosted immune response um, and just have had it and been asymptomatic, there is a theory out there that, you know, is there some sort of genetic mutation or... Um, deletion of a particular gene that makes some folks um, imperceptible uh, to, uh, to COVID. We don't know. There are some viruses such as HIV where people have a certain gene deletion that makes them immune to acquiring HIV. Is that the same for COVID? We don't know. That That's research that needs to be done and data that needs to be collected before we can make that conclusion. Okay. I'm I'm knocking on wood for you here in the studio. Thank Dr. you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it does make me wonder if you want to get the antibody test just to see, like, have you had it and, and you did pass it quickly or, um, should, you know, should, should you be studied? <laughs> I, I'm absolutely willing to donate blood and, and participate in a study. Um, it very well may be that I'm, uh, I was asymptomatic. Um, I've certainly had exposures, so... Um, 
Yeah, I'm I, willing to help out that research. It's remarkable to me that someone in a hospital setting uh, would not have contracted it. And I'm also happy for you, just as I am for Dr. Lin Q's wife. Dr. Mehta, any thoughts about uh, NOVIDs? Um, I, you know, I think Dr. Janowitz and Dr. Lin Q highlighted most of the issues is that, you know, at, for almost every disease, there are people that are less likely to get it, whether it's comorbidities, whether it's a unique immune system. There's so much in science and the body's really just an amazing um amazing factory that uh, um, the research will, you know, tell us eventually maybe why some of these patients never got it. I think a lot of the people that have not had it, um, maybe the proper terms, they haven't tested positive. Yeah. Um, and they've had it somewhere along the way, but, but who knows? Yeah. I appreciate that subtlety. Let's talk a bit about masking. And I have a feeling that this will refer back to the initial part of our conversation, which is that there are some populations that remain still quite vulnerable to COVID. And we see that in who's being hospitalized and who's dying. Uh, I, I see folks, older folks often on my bus, in stores, with masks. They are fewer and further between. Who who should be masking now? Dr. Lin Q? Yeah. When I counsel my patients, because they'll come into the ICU, and a lot of them are of the I tested positive for COVID, but I came in with X, Y, or Z other, you know, I counsel them that, it, you know, they have to weigh the risks and benefits, you know, for themselves, right? So, you know, I tell them what their risks are, you know, why they're at, you know, at higher risk or not. And I let them, you know, and I tell them ultimately you need to decide, you know, with the, based on how much virus is going around, how many people are around, you know, how much risk they have to make a decision for themselves, right? You know, we're not going to go back to a mandatory masking everywhere day. I think that that's been too politicized to happen. But I think it's important to give people the tools to make the best decisions for themselves. So that's, I try to take a practical approach to it. And then it's a personal decision with a a variety of inputs, I hear you saying. Exactly. Uh Uh-huh. I guess I want to talk a little bit about reinfection because that's certainly related to the idea of wearing masks. Uh, Dr. Janowitz, well, you haven't had COVID at all, but <laughs> are you are you seeing reinfection? And what are your thoughts around masking these days? I'll note that you're in Mesa County, where there was uh, perhaps more resistance to masks. Yes, um, so people are indeed susceptible to being reinfected. Um, we don't have perfect immunity after uh, getting COVID. And uh, as we see mutations of COVID, um, we may have uh, multiple infections over uh, the upcoming years. So whether someone who's had COVID should mask or not, again, that's really going to be an individual decision as we've just, just heard. And local epidemiology and your own comfort level with becoming reinfected and the the risks that may be associated with that, um, whether it's severe disease or the potential of uh, long COVID affecting you personally should factor into each each individual's decision of whether or not to mask. Well, and as Dr. Lin Q said, it's also a question of how much virus there is circulating in the community, right? And because we're not yet endemic and we're still in a pandemic, as you have suggested, uh, Dr. Janowitz, you know, this is still unstable. And so there may be surges. I want to spend just a few moments asking about your own health, particularly your mental health. Uh, We have all been checking in with each other for about the past three years. 
And, you know, that means you've been on the front line of, of a global and once-in-a-generation event. How are you holding up, Dr. Lin Q? Um, I think I'm holding up okay. I think that anybody who says they're holding up, you know, perfect and they're better than they were before the pandemic, you know, probably they probably actually need to be checked out. Um, <laughs> but um, They might be in denial. You, you know, but I think that, you know, you have highs and lows. And I think that with the lower volumes in the ICU in terms of um, COVID and, you know, that it's allowed us to get back, you know, a little bit back to normal. Um, you know, a lot of physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, you know, have suffered burnout. And a lot, of, I think, the people who have um, had said burnout have already left the field. And so I think that, leave, you know, that leaves the rest of us and, you know, having different, you know, coping mechanisms. For me, it's, you know, I have a family to go home to and get away from it all. I think, you know, having those different coping mechanisms helps you get through it. And the further we're out from the big surges, you know, the the better we all are. Have you seen colleagues leave the profession then? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, especially, you know, people who were close to, you know, they were close to retirement or, you know, they had at risk, um, you know, health issues. You know, a lot of them left early too, like in 2020, no. you know, but we still see to this day people trickling out just because of the burdens that this disease That's has put on us. Interesting. It was a quickening of retirement for some folks. Dr. Janowitz, uh, how, how are you doing mentally? I'm doing okay. Much better now uh, than three years ago when we were, you know, gathering information quickly and, and having to change how we responded sometimes on an hourly or daily basis uh, as new information um, was was gathered and learned. Now we've reached a little bit of a, a steady state. We have fantastic team of providers here. And I think we're at a, a level of comfort that we know what we need to do uh, for folks who are admitted with COVID. And we're seeing some hope as those numbers are starting to dwindle and we're getting back into uh, caring for people uh, who present with all the diseases and, and issues that we had seen prior to COVID. But there's still burnout and exhaustion because of that COVID tail that you mentioned earlier where we're seeing a lot of people who are now finally seeking care for what they put off or, or put on the side burner um, throughout the pandemic until now. Right. And of course, that's its own difficulty for healthcare professionals, the kind of backlog. Um, wh what was your best cope coping mechanism, Dr. Janowitz? Um, well, I, you know, here on the Western Slope, we have a great opportunity to get outdoors and to exercise, to go for hikes, uh, runs, bike rides. Um, and so just to get out and uh, decompress and get away from it all um, really made a difference for me. Um, and, and going home to family was incredibly important. Dr. Mehta, how are you doing? Um, I, I think we, we, we could talk for half an hour about that. I think I persevered <laughs> uh, fairly well um, through all of this. Obviously, you know, losing so many patients and working on the other, other end of it with the public health issues was, was trying for me. I have a great family. Um, 
that's been supportive. But I've seen too kind of the toll it continues to take on my colleagues. You know, we've lost a lot of nurses at Denver Health to retirement. Um, and these were people that have been around for a long time. So that's been difficult. Um, you know, the other thing is that burnout traditionally is uh, based on experiences at work. And I think what we've evolved to is a combination of burnout and moral injury. Um, and the moral injury stems from external factors, like the fact that over the last three years, we've been dealing with a pandemic that really should have put public health at the pinnacle of, of where we devote a lot of our funding and efforts from a governmental institution. And I think Colorado's done a great job, but I think a lot of other states have taken this as a reason to dismantle their public health infrastructure. And so we're seeing those news reports. We're seeing the reports about violence on healthcare workers, even if nothing's happening in your own hospital, hmm. or increasing legislation for a variety of things that traditionally have been conversations between healthcare workers, healthcare providers, and their patients. And now we're being told you have to care for people this way or that way, or you can't care for people in a, in a certain way. Um, and I think that external moral injury makes addressing burnout which is now a much larger concept, very difficult. Very difficult. And yeah, it needs to be the focus of a lot of research. And I'm really worried that we're going to continue losing people from healthcare and you're going to start seeing expanding healthcare deserts in the country. Around and now. again, you mentioned that tale of COVID and yeah. I think we haven't seen the end of it. Dr. Anuj Mehta, ICU pulmonologist at Denver Health. He's also advised the state on vaccine allocation. Dr. Ken Lin Q from National Jewish and Dr. Diane Janowitz of St. Mary's Medical Center in Grand Junction. This is Colorado Matters. The Southwest United States has been in a drought for more than 20 years. A big problem for the Colorado River and the people who use it. Parched. The new podcast from CPR News is about people who rely on the river that shape the West and have ideas to save it. We cannot just allow nature to disappear. Find Parched wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Nearly 10,000 students graduated from CU Boulder this year. Only one of them is 76 years old. I wanted to make sure with my children that I set an example, not only for them, but for my grandchildren as well, that grandma can still do this. Her name is Rita Garson. She started taking college courses decades ago after high school. I wanted to be a nurse. That's what it's in my high school yearbook, a nurse. Then she decided, no, a doctor instead. And I was still trying to find myself. And I had three children. And the children had to come first. So even though I wanted to finish, I had to get my kids, get their education straightened out. So she left college. Years later, after she came to Colorado and her daughter graduated from CU, Garson decided to take classes again herself. She owns a business in medical publishing. Now she's well past the age when some people retire, but Garson wanted to get her degree to set that example she talked about. She has clearly inspired her family because her daughter and granddaughter have become doctors, living out the vision Garson had for her own professional life. And after all these years, how did it feel for her to walk across the graduation stage in Boulder a few days ago? Oh, we didn't do it. 
Nobody did it. It was pouring rain. We were soaked, all of us dripping wet. My hair was fixed. It was beautiful before we got out there and it started to pour. We all got up in a section and said, yay, we did it. Garson has done all this while living with Parkinson's. But she's not slowing down. She plans to travel and to keep skiing and riding horses. In conclusion, finish what you started. It's worth it. The other thing is, do not let Parkinson's or any other type of disease define you. Fight it. Do what you can. And don't give up. Rita Garson, who just graduated college at 76, CU Boulder says that likely likely makes her their second oldest student to get an undergraduate degree. When we come back, a bookish sequel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Listen, that thing, the state legislative session, it's over. Lawmakers have wrapped up their work. Housing and taxes. Progressive policies and moderate politics. And so much more. We're up for debate this year. And we're here to explain what did and didn't get done. And to look behind the curtain to see why that happened. In a new episode of CPR's politics podcast, Purplish. At CPR.org and wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. When The Book Club hit theaters in 2018, it proved older actresses, who are often dismissed by Hollywood, could equate to box office success. Candace Bergen, Jane Fonda, Diane Keaton, and Mary Steenburgen are back in the much-anticipated sequel. Life is like a really great novel. You never know what the next chapter will bring. Hello! One question, what's going on with the gloves? I'll show you what's next. What? Oh my God. You're engaged? When did this happen? It was last night. You know what that means? Bachelorette. The book says we can't reject our destiny. And I think we should all go to Italy. Italy? We might never have a chance to do something like this again. Grandma, I love this city. I love anything that's falling apart more than I am. (laughs) The movies are the creative vision of a couple who now make Boulder their home. CPR's Eden Lane sat down with Bill Holderman and Aaron Sims. I want to know how the two of you even came to Colorado, because you're not from Colorado, are you? No, we're not. Definitely not natives to Colorado. We, um, from... Aaron's from Montreal, and I'm from Chicago originally. We were in Los Angeles for over 20 years, or I was. I was there for 10, him for 20. Um, And my kids and their mom moved to Boulder uh, eight years ago, and I was going back and forth for a few years, and then during the pandemic, we decided, you know what? No one needs us in person anymore. Let's go make the move that we'd been um, hoping to make for a while. So it was actually... That was the inspiration, and, and it was it was a great. I will say, not I don't think anyone any place was better to be during the pandemic. Mm. It was Colorado was still all of the nature was there and open and a lot of fresh air, and we it got was to fantastic. Hike and cross country ski, you know, very isolated 
uh, activities, and it was we felt incredibly lucky. We didn't realize that that was what was going to happen. But we, when we first moved to Boulder, it was really at the beginning of the pandemic, and we had already been going back and forth so much. And so we said, okay, well, let's just get a place now, and we'll stay here. And then 10 months went by, and we were like, well, I guess we better get rid of our place in LA because this is nuts. <laughs> and I don't know if we ever realized that we were going to be full-time Boulder people, but we never left. And of course, the pandemic went on, and here we are. We're we're home based Boulder. And that was after the first installment of the book club. Oh yes. Yes. This was in 2020. Literally, we moved into our house. Uh, I and then the world June, shut June down. June 2020. <laughs> yeah. Well, it had it was shutting down already, basically. Yeah. So we were like, let's get out of here. So what was it like to bring to bring your work as filmmakers with you to Colorado? Do you miss? the sort of friction you have by being in and among other filmmakers in LA? Yeah, I mean, there's things that we miss, but there's a lot of advantages to not being in LA, I will say. And, and the thing that's interesting is the way that the film business works now, always, you know, a little bit chasing tax incentives and and these things, you know, it's very rare to make a movie in Los Angeles. We're Although always, we did make the first one We there. did make the first one <laughs> there. But you're always in these other hubs. Um, and so it's, for us, we can write wherever we are. And so Boulder's a great place for us to write. And it's, you know, the the rejuvenation of being able to get out, walk out our front door and, you know, walk into the mountains and get that I don't know, free, fresh sense of, of just place and clear your mind is something that I think we really value. Um, and then when we go and make a movie, we're, whether we were based in Los Angeles or based somewhere else, we were going usually somewhere, you know, we were always having to travel anyway. So it's uh, it's a great place to base and it's a great place to come back home to. Yeah, Boulder. of course, the pandemic shift everything for, shifted everything for everybody, as we know. And it's like, if we're going to be making a movie in Rome uh, or if we're going to be doing post-production in New York, we're certainly not going to travel back to Los Angeles on our time off to not be with his kids, my stepkids. Like that would, <laughs> that makes no sense. So the L.A. of it all just kind of stopped making sense. But but we love coming back here and being with people that are in our community, in our business, certainly. But by the time we left we were a little tired of having no other kind of relationship than just people in the film industry. So mm -hmm. going to Boulder, we got to see that, you know, there's there's other there's other life out there. We're out here. There's <laughs> other ways of life out there. It's certainly great to have some fresh perspective yeah. outside of the, the film bubble. So in your sequel, yeah. The Book Club, The Next Chapter, did you begin writing that while you were here in Boulder during the pandemic? Or because I know movies can take so long, did it begin before you moved here? Yeah. We we had a draft before we moved there. We actually had scouted uh, Italy fall of 2019. And then when the pandemic happened, everything shifted. Um, and so the after that first draft and after we had scouted that first time, we got to Boulder. And truthfully, that's where the movie really, the movie that became the the, or the script that became the movie um, really took shape. And and I, I think 
We, we wrote remember. it at the dining room table in our new house in Boulder. Yeah. One thousand percent. And we remember, I mean, I remember very clearly, you know, some of the big breakthroughs that you have on a script. And I remember sort of the moments of where we were in our house and what was going on. So it's it's pretty it's pretty fun to think about that. Well, our, I would say our biggest breakthrough, the one that actually got the movie made, because Yes, there's the element of like your financiers have to be willing to do it. The cast has to be available. You got all of these things. But as writers and a director, producers, you have to believe in your script. I know that sometimes people go ahead and make movies that they don't 100% believe in, but we're not totally like that. And the day that we cracked the real element, um, we were at Devil's Thumb Ranch, which yeah. became... <laughs> We were, it's one of our favorite places, and we would go into the little, like, business conference room. We'd go for a cross-country ski, and we came back, and we cracked something, and that was it. So, I mean, Colorado is is deep in this. Yeah, that became movie. that became one of our favorite little writer's retreats um, out there to be able to cross-country ski in the morning and then write in the afternoon. It was, that's pretty special. Yeah. Can't do that in Los Angeles. <laughs> And virtually, perhaps, but not for real. Yeah. The success of the first book club film, of course, you're never guaranteed a sequel, but it was very obvious that there could and should have been one because we met these lovely female characters. Female characters in an age group, I must say, that I, I'm so happy to see stories featuring, centering women in my age group. They're not in your age group, though, so... How did that come to no. be? How did you find these characters? Why did why did they appeal to you at, at this stage of life? You know, it, it twofold. I think we were both working um, for Robert Redford for a long time. I was there running his company for almost 14 years. Yeah. It gave us, you know, so much of our thinking was about, you know, finding material for him and, and trying to prove that the, these great actors of this generation that are getting a little bit forgotten about by Hollywood, um, mm. trying to find roles and stories that bring them back. Because the truth is, they're as vibrant and smart and and brilliant on screen as they ever have been. And they just aren't getting the opportunities. So for us, that was part of it. And then the other part was, very innocently, I was sending Fifty Shades of Grey to my mother for Mother's Day back, <laughs> the you <books>. know, <laughs> however many years ago. And... Aaron saw me doing this and thought I was crazy, but just crazy enough that she then followed suit and sent it to her mother and stepmother. And so we then we just had a very, you know, innocent talk about our moms reading these books. And, and they're different, like how for his mom, she would love that. My mother would think I was insane, my stepmother. And that conversation led to the idea um, so, yeah. And but I we mean, also, we were huge fans. I mean, the thing is, we're, we were huge fans of this these women uh and their movies did you write it for these women did you have these actresses in mind 100 yeah. percent. and so diane's name is still diane in the script we had i mean we when we were so innocent we were we sent it to the actors and we just wrote their names in because that's who we were writing for and uh wow. diane's name never changed jane the first draft that she read her the character's name was jane and then we changed it to vivian um, but yeah, we were definitely targeting, targeting these actors. But, you know, to really answer your question, we were surrounded by a lot of people that were older than us that we found super inspiring. And it, 
It was a combination of a bunch of things happening at once. Him sending Fifty Shades, which just blew my mind and opened <laughs> my mind to this idea that, that that I had never had before, that you could still be sexual and confident and not embarrassed about your age. I was like, whoa, I want my mom. It was really me wanting my mother to be inspired by that. So I sent her. And then also working for Redford, seeing someone that was older and just was pull, you know, plowing forward, no apologies. And so, and we, and my, like my favorite movies are First Wives Club and this, you know, I could list a bunch and just wanting to put those people back together and basically make a movie that I would want to see. So, yeah, we aren't the age, but I guess those are the actors we love. Those are who we grew up watching, and that's, I don't know, just all, it happened that way. It's also really delightful to see four female characters having supportive and fun and friction in their relationships with each other, being friends. Yeah. I think that you just hit on something really important, which is the depiction of female friendship in the movies. And I think historically, when you had multiple female characters, there was always a sense that they had to be in serious conflict or they had to be catty or they had. And, you know, Aaron speaks about this a lot. Like, that's not how she is with her female friends. There's a lot of love and there's a lot of support. And so one of the things that we really loved about the first movie and then really wanted to expand on in the second movie was making sure that that female friendship was depicted more honestly. And it's, you know, friendship in general. It's like, these are people that we love, but we won't let get away with things that we think, um, you know, are hurting themselves. And I think that support, but that love is really the, the, the heart of the yeah. friendship that I, you see on screen. I don't think like female friendship is like Kumbaya where we're all like, and you know, it's, but all of my friends, I've never had some kind of like throw down cat fight with. And I've had friends since I'm 12 years old that are still my best friends. We, you, you, What you do is when someone does something crazy or we think that they're making a strange decision, you you talk to them about it. But I don't I don't have that that fighting with your girlfriend's relationship that I see on screen. So I just I just don't think it's real. And you know, we talked a lot about this. It's like these relationships are kind of the longest relationships you have in your life that aren't your family. Mm-hmm. They're chosen people in your life that you commit to and recommit to sometimes from when you're a little kid all the way till till the very end. So these are like, they're kind of very romantic relationships in a way with, you know, taking out the the physical of it. And I think that's why everybody loves seeing movies about female friendship because we of course, we know our girlfriends are important, but like maybe they're the most important thing in our lives. We do love seeing these kinds of relationships depicted. So I'm surprised that more uh, other filmmakers aren't following your example in in larger numbers. But so so grateful that you have tackled this. Thank you. For anyone who hasn't seen the first one and has yet to see the second one, how do you describe the book club and the book club, the next chapter? Well, I think at very first, they are hopefully um, entertaining. They're funny, uh, meaningful. I think one of the things for us as writers and creators, it's there has to be a deeper message sitting underneath the comedy and underneath the the entertainment. And so for us, the big themes, um, you know, borrowing from The Alchemist in the second movie mm-hmm. is really 
you know, you're in control of your own destiny and grab hold of your own steering wheel and you still have control no matter what age or stage you're at. And I think that's really important. And I think, you know, we start the second movie with a quote from Paulo Coelho saying that at a certain point in our lives, we think it, our lives are controlled by fate and that's the world's biggest lie. And I think that's really true. I think at a certain point, society tells us, you know, we no longer have the ability to to make changes. It's we get too old or we get too, you know, habituated into a certain lifestyle. And I think that's just not true. And the the great irony here is the women, the cast, the actors who play these characters, they live their life very much like that. They are constantly curious. They're interested in the world around them. Uh, interesting. And I think it's, it's really very they inspiring. they don't apologize for their age. And I think I've heard it a lot. I'm, uh, you know, starting to feel invisible at a certain age, you know, especially for women. And I wonder, you know, I think we think so much about that because that's that's really what our movie's about is about, you know, not accepting the the things you're saying to yourself in your head, like I'm invisible, I no longer matter, I'm not viable. Um, and just challenge, it's actually really just challenging yourself to continue to take yourself seriously, continue to follow your dreams, whatever they, however big or small and not feeling too embarrassed to do that, because I think that happens to a lot of us. Mm. Um, and maybe at a certain age, we start looking for validation from the wrong places, whereas really it's just about, do you still do you still stay interested in life in general? Are you, do you have new hobbies? Do you have new interests? Like, I don't know. It's It's a tough, it's a tough thing, but I hope this movie inspires people to get outside of their comfort zone, outside of their bubble and keep exploring and keep learning. At the end of the day too, especially with the second movie, I mean, these are hopefully inspiring, but feel good movies that are a great piece of escapism that will take you to a whole other world, take you to Italy. Um, and hopefully what people will find a very beautiful way and, and make you feel really good when you leave the theater. And guess what? Our characters can use a cell phone. They know how to operate in the world. You know, it's, you actually go to the movie and maybe you're this age and you see yourself properly represented on TV. Uh, sorry, on the screen that you're a real a real person who actually functions and isn't being made fun of, which I think happens a lot in movies with older people. Mm -hmm. we're, we're not making fun of older people. We actually think they're awesome. <laughs> So, Aaron, Bill, what's the one thing you were hoping you'd have a chance to say today that you don't normally get a chance to say? Well, I think it's fun for us to to feel a little bit connected to our new home state, truthfully, and be able to let everyone in Colorado know that, you know, I think sometimes the film and entertainment industry, it's so it can be so isolated into Los Angeles or isolated into New York or on the coasts. And you know, the truth is, I think storytellers are all across the country, as we know. And for us, it's fun to be able to connect with the people that are our new neighbors and, and part of our new community, because I think, you know, they're inspiring us and hopefully they find value in, in the entertainment that uh, that we're putting out as well. Yeah. And I mean, the, the thing that's really on my mind right now is we, we all know that the first movie did incredibly well and surprised everybody in the industry and everybody was so shocked. We weren't shocked. We believe these are stories that should be told and we believe that there's, there's a lot. You might have been a little shocked. Well, I mean, of course we were thrilled. We were thrilled, but, but the belief for us was there always from the beginning. 
And now that we've been through a pandemic and all of the stuff that's happened, there's so much talk again of like, are people going to show up? And so we're, we're, we're nervous, but I still believe that these are, this is a story that should be told and that people want to see it. And I hope that our audience shows up again and proves that this, like, you know, we're out here. We want content. We want good scripts. These movies should be financed with four leading ladies, 70s and 80s. So I want to say one other thing. Sure. Colorado, it's so interesting because now that we live there, everyone has a story about Colorado. Like all, everyone has had some great experience or yearns to live there themselves. Yeah, and they always say that. You know, you don't hear about it until you've moved there and you come back and you're talking to people and, and you say, oh yeah, we live in, in Colorado now. And I mean, I cannot tell you how many people say, oh, my dream. Yeah, oh they, my God, that's my they dream. They love it. We live in a very, we live in a very, very special state. And I think it's, it's fun to, uh, to be reminded of that by people. And, and it's fun to make sure that everyone in Colorado knows how special of a place we all share. Cause it's, it's pretty great. Every person we speak to wishes they lived in Boulder. <laughs> apparently, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> so the third chapter of the book club will be set in Colorado. There you go. Maybe. Ooh, mountain. Mountain movie. Yeah. I was just going to say, it's been very fun the last couple of days to hearing how many people are hoping there is a third installment. So that's, that's, again, it was not on our minds before, but it's, uh, it's certainly exciting. And, and driving that train is our cast. I mean, they seem, they seem really amped up for uh, one more chapter. So, well, you've created charming characters and they're cast with really, wonderful actresses. So of course we want to see more. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Bill Holderman and Aaron Sims live in Boulder. They spoke with CPR arts and culture reporter Eden Lane. They're co-writers and co-producers of The Book Club, The Next Chapter, which is now in theaters. Bill also directed. It's the sequel to the original hit movie from 2018. Thanks for joining us today, and thanks to my book club. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.